Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is Bill Haven. We talked last year. Of course, you know him from his time on Saturday Night Live. He's an impressions whiz. He did a mean Vincent Price. He also did a great job of justifying doing Vincent Price on network television in the 21st century. But his most famous character was Stefan from Weekend Update. I mean, you remember Stefan, right? New York's hottest club is taste. (laughs) Nightlife designer Tranny Griffith is back with an all-new club that answers the question, Huh? Don't look for a bouncer. There isn't one. Instead, the door is guarded by ten jacked homeless guys in old-fashioned bathing suits. (laughs) He left the show in 2013 and went on to perform in movies like Trainwreck, Inside Out, and the smash hit Sausage Party. Along with Fred Armisen, he also stars in the IFC show Documentary Now. His latest project is a TV show called Barry, which is about to kick off its second season. Hater stars as the show's title character, Barry Berkman. Barry is an ex-Marine turned low-rent hitman in Ohio turned aspiring actor in L.A. It's a brilliant and also maddening show. It's funny but dark. Over and over, Barry tries to settle down to lead something like a normal life. But over and over, his past rises to the surface. He gets a job he can't turn down. Somebody knows too much. The bodies pile up. It's not cute about how it shows violence and trauma. And in that way, even though the premise is a little preposterous, Barry is very honest. Here's a little bit from the show's first season. Barry is in L.A. about to pull off another hit. This time, it's for the Chechen mob. His target is a guy named Paco. He's camped out on a hill with a sniper rifle pointed at the victim's home. Then he gets a call from his contact in the Chechen mob, Noho Hank. I need you to wait, Barry. Just a little bit longer for my signal. Wait? For what? Wait, what? What what signal? Why? Because we sent bullet to the Bolivians. You sent a bullet to the Bolivians? What, like in the mail? DHL. It's actually really cool. So Paco is our informant within the Bolivians. We tell him, trust us. Tell us everything you know. He tell us. Because he is stupid. And now we have to kill him before he tell other people he tell us. Okay, what does it have to do with mailing a bullet? See, this way, we send a message to the Bolivians. Get inside their heads. They open mail. Bullet. What? Phone rings. Hello? Paco's dead. What? Little what leads to big what for full effect. Hank, you can't do this to me right now, all right? I'm fully exposed here. I got to do this now, all right? I got to do it right now. Now, well, when I get DHL confirmation from www.dhl.com, all right, that's when you kill Paco. So can you be a bro for me, please? Wait for a high sign. Hank, I got a clear shot of Paco right now. I'm taking I'm not waiting for some bullet. I'd rather you did, though. <laughs> Bill Hader, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, man. Um, I didn't, I guess I hadn't thought ever thought about it, but I didn't know that you hadn't directed anything before. Yeah, no, I hadn't. Because you're one of the most borderline compulsive uh, film nerds that yeah. I've ever spoken with on this yeah. show. And I'm including like whatever, 
lifelong movie director, Ryan Johnson or whatever. Yeah, right. Is included yeah. in that. You're right up there with them. Elvis Mitchell, you're yeah. right on that list. Yeah, when I get around those guys, we have a really fun conversation that it's <laughs> outside people, I think, looks like we're speaking a different language. Why know? do you think that is that you'd never tried to do that? Well, I think because, you know, I moved out to L.A. in 1999 to do that, and I didn't have any money, so I was just PAing and stuff like that. And and that, you know, making money as a crew person, you know, takes up all your time, and then I would be done, and I would have no energy to do anything. And so that coupled with you come to L.A. and everybody wants to do that. And I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was the only one that wanted to do that. And so you get a bit insecure and a bit intimidated. And then you also just don't want to be just another person with final draft on their laptop in a coffee shop. You know what I mean? You kind of, so I would keep it to myself more, I think. And then the third thing I would say is I had that thing. I don't know if you can relate to this, or but, but what I liked was the best thing you know it was so if i made something it had to stand up to you know spinal tap or dr strangelove or taxi driver or jaws or whatever it was you know I, I put too much pressure on myself so i would make little things and i would start editing them and i would go this sucks you know and i would discard it so the good thing about doing sketch was that it was weirdly disposable you know, you went up, you do, or, or improv, you would do Im, a, an improv show and it was just, oh, that went good or well, that didn't go good. Let's move on. There's a great interview with uh, Ira Glass where he talks about the point in your career that no one tells you about is the point where your tastes outstrip your abilities. Yeah. So you have gotten to the point where you have taste. You know what, you can recognize something that's good. You can look at your thing and say, Oh, but this isn't that exactly, and it's and it's a that's a much more eloquent way of putting it. <laughs> but it is it is a thing where you look at it and just say, uh, I just don't have it. And what the good people, um, everyone, if you go back and look at them, even Scorsese made these great short films and stuff. But who's that knocking on my door? It took years to make, and then he came out, and some people liked it, some people didn't. It got him. A, it got him a job doing a, a Roger Corman movie. You know, it wasn't until Mean Streets. It wasn't until his third feature that people went, "Whoa, this is really good." So everyone's journey is is different. I think there's also a, a a weird perspective that it gives you to work on a film set, and this is from. I mean, I've worked on a film set five days in my life or whatever. Yeah. But like uh, from, you know, my best buddy was a PA and uh, whatever the lowest level of producer is on things for the first eight or ten years that he lived out here. And the things that I remember him telling me about were that at the PA level, half or sometimes two-thirds of the people who are your coworkers are so incompetent mm-hmm. that you can't believe that they could have ever gotten a job. Yeah. But then, you know, everyone else pretty much is hyper competent. Yeah. <laughs> and so you get this weird, like either you get, I guess, a confidence boost from the fact that you're there working hard and the other people who's someone's nephew yeah. aren't, uh, or you're just like, I don't, I, how, how would you ever... And yeah, it's also so all con- like comp- yeah. the, the competency part is so all consuming. Yeah, yeah. You just, I mean, 
I, yeah, you would call those people furniture. That's what we call those people. <laughs> we would go, oh, that person's just furniture. You would, you know, they, they're just useless. But yeah, I mean, I, I just know that when I was on m- movie sets, it, it at first it made it seem so impossible because it was so big and this giant army of people making a thing and you're so exhausted and you're just, to try to keep your persistence of vision that was a hard thing because each day is different, a new problem, and you just go, oh, gosh, I hope this all cuts together. I hope, you know, we're all telling the same story. That's the kind of thing that I learned over time what makes a, a bad product. I think we might share some personality traits. I feel like I almost, like, lucked into having any kind of career at all because I – am the kind of person who's terrified to try and do something really special and amazing because I feel like I could never actually achieve what I wish it would be. Exactly. But then one day in college, I walked to the college radio station and, you know, you get a show on the college radio station and you have to fill that time. Yeah. You can't not show up. Like that's not one of the choices. So the fact that I've, you know, done this dumb show once a week for – 19 years or whatever. Yeah, and I knew about this show and when I got SNL, I mean, you know, 2005, it was, you know yeah, what I mean? But, like, I imagine SNL was, like, uh, a similar thing. Like, one of the things about Saturday Night Live is that it's live. Yeah. And you have to do it. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, my God, no, I hosted last weekend and I was a wreck all week. I mean, I had friends who who've only known me post-SNL, and they went, wow, you seemed uh, like you're having a nervous breakdown. I was like, oh, no, that's just my SNL face, which is <laughs> I'm just very focused. And, um, you know, and Laura Michaels, to his credit, came down before the show and went, you know, Will you relax. <laughs> He's like, stop worrying, have fun. He's like, you're going to be fine. I go, I know, this is just my process, <laughs> you know, as I kind of have a flip out. And, you know, the thing that uh, Alex Bays used to run update, he would always say to me, you know, after everything, I'd run up to him. Was that good? Was that, was that good? Was that all right? And I'd go, yes, Bill, stop. You know, because I don't even really hear the audience. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Hader. He's the star and co-creator of HBO's Barry. He is also co-creator of the show Documentary Now on IFC and was a regular cast member on Saturday Night Live. I read an interview recently with Norm MacDonald, and I don't know, I mean, we're roughly the same age, and Norm MacDonald was my hero when I was Oh, teenager. yeah, on Update. I mean, he was in real. Yeah, yeah the, the, it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. In my yeah, life. him on Update with Downey writing was kind of the, the golden. And he talked about the fact that he regularly had panic attacks at Saturday Night Live, including on the air. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, Norm MacDonald, though in some ways he appears to be completely insane, yeah. is a very cool customer. Yeah, he is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I've never met the man, but... Uh, He's very know. cool, yeah. And it really, uh, it really blindsided me, that fact and that insight into what his actual experience in that world was, because I thought, you know, well... It, his anxiety attacks weren't about the head of NBC not liking him for making fun of O.J. Simpson. Yeah, they just were kept just doing about, it. Yeah, yeah, he seemed like a real ballsy guy. Yeah. yeah. And that, oh, even he got... 
think it's the week is really hard on you. And when you do, I had a panic attack on 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 air once when I was playing Julian Assange. And people have watched it and they can't tell, but I I knew that I started sweating and I started I could when I my things where I couldn't project my voice, I would get very quiet and people can't hear me because you know I would just I would start to just crumble. I remember I was a Ronald Reagan robot once in a cold open, and I couldn't project. I just didn't project my voice and. And uh, Seth Meyers went, "Oh, is there something wrong with the microphone or whatever?" I go, "No, no, no. I'm I'm having a I'm having a panic panic attack." <laughs> but even other cast members, and I don't want to say their names, it's, it's you know have come to me and said, "Oh no, I had a full on panic attack." Or I had one cast member just like left, just flew home, <laughs> just when I can't, I need, I just my brain's a little broken, you know what I mean, and and. I, you know, for so I missed a show for a week and I get it, you know, because it's a lot of accumulative stress. But you did it for eight years and you were good at it. Yeah, I know. And it was hard the whole time. It was never. Do you know you were good at it? I, I know I was good at it. Yeah, I never. I look at it and I'm someone that's very much going like, ah, geez. I, I, again, what we're talking about in my head, I'm projecting this. And then when I see it, I'm like, oh, I can hear my voice in that impression a little too much. Or, oh, gosh, I wish my physicality was a little different. I thought I was doing this, but instead it looks like that. And um, and that can be exhausting to talk to people about where they go, Bill, it went great. Like, relax. Um, but I, for me, it's, it's mostly um, yeah, going like, okay, that was good. And I, I was happy on on Saturday that I kind of said, oh, I'm just going to have fun, you know, and throw that out and hang with the cast and just goof around and, and, and just have a good time. I want to play a clip of you doing Stefan on uh, the recent Saturday Night Live that <laughs> you hosted. And Stefan is like a what is his setup like a nightlife correspondent or something? Yeah, he's supposed to tell people tourists in New York where to go. Um, and you know this is this is, was uh, maybe your best known recurring character oh, on Saturday doubt, Night Live. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Vincent Price fans out there. Yeah, no, but this was the thing that when people come up to me, this is usually the thing they talk about. And I, you know, I think I said this the last time you were on the show, but I sincerely, I think it's the funniest recurring character. I on Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's Live nice. Of ever. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's just usually is just this list of weird specifics that John Mulaney or you and John Mulaney or yeah, John Mulaney and, and I and um, I remember once I got Joe Mandy had thrown in a couple that they used, but um, but mostly it's Mulaney and um, and then between dress and air, he would he would change things around or he would show them to me as I was walking out. Sometimes I'm reading them for the first time. But a lot of times it's it's a lot of time it's it's him kind of as I'm walking out like oh this got changed to this, and I go oh, okay, <laughs> you know this character is now called Gay Leota. and I go okay, <laughs> and uh, and and then I'm saying it for the first time on air, but he's told me and I start laughing. Um, but what also is happening is that the cue card guys are laughing, Seth would be laughing, Chris Kelly, our stage manager, is right off screen and. He he's laughing really hard, and I'm a soft touch man. I laugh really easy. I I just laugh. Well, I mean, it's a pretty funny stuff. Let's listen. 
If you're drunk in Midtown, doing cheap coke off your laundry card, I have just the place for you. New York's hottest club is Gersh. Inspired by true events. This, this former CVS, which became a Chase Bank and then became a CVS again, has a familiar yet troubling feel. Like when Larry King would play himself in a movie. I hadn't read that before. That was a new thing Mulaney put in. That was the Larry King thing. Like, that's a good example. Like, and then when he came out, Mulaney came out as my lawyer, Shy, the piss artist. And, um, and he, I, I just, you know, I'm supposed to whisper in his ear. So I go, I just said nothing. And then he whispered, uh, my girlfriend works at Yoshinoa Beef Ball. <laughs> A, a Japanese themed chain restaurant that's yeah, only on the West Coast. Yeah, it's only on the West Coast. And it just, just to, again, just, it's just people, mostly John, throwing rocks at me to make me break. And it works. We'll continue my conversation with Bill Hader after a short break. He'll tell me about the influence his folks had on his, frankly, amazing taste in film. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from new Smart Water Alkaline and Smart Water Antioxidant. Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH for when you're working up a sweat doing what you love. Or Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. The same great purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Smart Water. That's pretty smart. We may be on the verge of another sexual revolution. In this one, we turn to machines for companionship and sex. My main objective is to be a perfect companion. How artificial intelligence and robots are changing the landscape of love. This week on Hidden Brain. Hi, it's me, Paula Poundstone. And it's me, Adam Felber. We have a podcast called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. It's a comedy podcast where we bring on experts to teach us stuff we need to know. And, by the way, the guy who came to tell us what to do when you encounter a bear never showed up. Anyway, it's fun. You are guaranteed laughs in every episode. You can't really guarantee laughs. What if somebody doesn't laugh? We'll get sued. Join us for our next episode when we have an expert in consumer law explain to us how to defend ourselves against one humorless litigious shut-in with enough time on their hands to sue us over our unfulfilled claim of guaranteed laughs in every episode here at MaximumFun.org. The Cat of the Week is Mabel from Green Bank, West Virginia. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Hader. Together with the legendary Henry Winkler, Stephen Root, and more, he stars in the TV show Barry. Its second season premieres on HBO later this month. We talked last year. I want to play another clip from Barry, which is my guest Bill Hader's new show. He stars in it and co-created it and directed a bunch of it, um, including this episode. So Barry is a hitman who uh, takes a shine to an acting class accidentally. And his in this scene, he is talking. He's basically trying to talk, accidentally trying to talk his way into this acting class. He's come to one and accidentally been involved in it and thought this is kind of amazing. And it had never occurred to him that something could be this magical. And he stops Henry Winkler's character. His name is Cousineau. He's the acting teacher in the 
parking lot mm-hmm. and is talking to him through his window. And Cousineau basically tells him, you stink, go home. Yeah. You want to know what I'm good at? I'm good at killing people. <laughs> yeah, when I got back from Afghanistan, I uh, was really depressed. You know, like I didn't leave my house for months. And uh, this friend of my dad's, he's, uh, he's like an uncle to me. He, uh, he helped me out and he gave me a purpose. He told me that that what I was good at over there could be useful here. And uh, it's a job, you know? Like, the money's good, and uh, these people I take out, like, they're, they're bad people, you know, like, they're pieces of um, But lately, you know, I've, like, I'm not sleeping, and uh, that depressed feeling's back, you know? Like, like, I know there's more to me than that. And he says, oh, did you improvise that? Yeah, yeah, he thinks it was from a play, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you worry that you would be uh, paralyzed by your influences and that you have, you're such a connoisseur um, of film especially mm-hmm. um, and comedy that that would tighten you up especially writing in a world that has there's there's some really really great hitman things yeah like all of 1990 of all of the 90s was people trying to make cool hitman things and some of them are real good well yeah we didn't like that we we didn't we wanted to be more real and kind of you know when people read the synopsis they go oh it's like get shorty and you go no it's not you know like get shorty you could make a get shorty you know kind of version of this but we wanted how he was feeling to be real and we wanted the violence to be real and brutal because it's a world that he doesn't want to be in anymore so you should show it for what it is um instead of cool or or funny you know doing some sort of weekend at bernie's bit with a body when he runs into you know uh, someone from the acting class and has to pretend that they're not dead you know it would have been easy to do that stuff, but, you know, again, I just feel like it would be selling it out and also kind of weirdly inappropriate, you know what I mean? Um, so um, that's the kind of tightrope that the show walks, you know, of saying, yeah, we, you know, the violence is kind of, uh, what violence is, is it's brutal and sad and... You know, he's confronted in the second episode with the father of someone that he's responsible for their death. And he's never seen that before. He goes, oh, right, someone dies and all these other people are affected, you know, and this this father is never going to be the same again. And it's that guilt, you know, and him and then the acting people going, yeah, yeah, no, those feelings you have, you know, use those, (laughs) you know, in your work. And so it's just him trying to get into tune, you know, and just trying to access some emotion so he could be a human, you know, and that's kind of what the story is. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is comic and actor Bill Hader. Let's play another clip from my guest Bill Hader's uh, new show, which is called Barry. It's on HBO. Um, This is you in acting class. Henry Winkler, who plays your acting teacher, Cousineau, is on stage 
uh, you have shot one of the people in the class. Shot mm-hmm. and ki- well, you you were I was you a didn't bit, actually yeah, do I, the right, shooting. Well, we'll see. You You'll were, see it yeah. from the show. Yeah. Okay, but the point is that you had a, you had you accidentally made a connection with this guy who got you into the acting class, mm-hmm. and now that person has been shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And Henry Winkler is announcing this to the class. Mm-hmm. Now I wish I could say that this was the first time that one of my students was gunned down in the street, but it's not. And as much as it pains me to say it. It is most likely not the last. So, where do we go from here? I say, we do what Ryan would have wanted us to do, and we use it. Sorry, Mr. Kusner, what's that mean? Use it? Use Ryan's death the way that you are feeling right this second. The sorrow, the rage, the terror. You know, I use my past all the time in my work. If I want pure sorrow, I call up Princess Diana's death. Or the day that my dad fell off the roof when I was a kid. Kerplunk. <laughs> Kerplunk. Yeah, he added that. <laughs> Kerplunk. <laughs> there is um this character is so it's the most broadly drawn character, at least in the first few episodes, even more than the Chechen gangsters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think he has such a sincere quality to him. Um, and he's so apparently sweet that it really lets him behave monstrously. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, he's just doing his thing, man. Yeah, no, he's just, I mean, well, you know, in that that world, in that little place in that uh acting class he is a king he's the the ruler he's the decider he's the the whole thing and then the minute he steps out of that he's just an out-of-work actor it was interesting to watch henry you know saying that to him you know when you're in here you're a king but when you step out you're an out-of-work actor and he went yeah no i get it and and played that you know in the scenes which i thought was uh, really great have you taken acting classes, like acting class, acting classes? No, not really. Um, I took an acting class at San Francisco State University, and uh, I remember that I was supposed to go to the zoo, observe an animal, and then come back and act like the animal. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to the zoo. Yeah. That, In retrospect, I should have. I've gone to the zoo a lot lately, and it's yeah. actually really a lot of fun. Yeah, to <laughs> act like an animal. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's more, if, if we got a second season, there's more of that stuff that we could do. You know, it it was, because we only have 30 minutes, it's a lot of of having to try to streamline things and going, oh, gosh, we had this big idea, but now we can't do it because we have to service the story we're telling, so we got to cut all this stuff and... I would love to get more of that stuff in if we got to do more. There's a beautiful scene in the pilot episode. I think it's in the pilot episode. It might be in the second episode where your character, Barry, has stumbled into this acting class and ends up going out afterwards with everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, Barry is a a hitman. He's fundamentally alienated from others. Yeah. You know, by design, right? Yeah. And... It is a it's a very beautiful moment of him almost like recognizing that he could enjoy human contact. Yeah, yeah, that he could be a person. Yeah, that's a be in a community. Yeah, yeah. No, I I relate to that. You know, I I moving to L.A. and not knowing a whole lot of people and just you know you you latch on to people who are in the same 
place that you are. You know, you just kind of, you know, just hold on to them for dear life. And then out of insecurity and all this other stuff, especially when you're young, then there's infighting and, you know, people being jealous that this person got a job on this thing. And, you know, I, you know, I remember a friend got a job as a PA on AI and oh my god, that's because we were doing these super low budget movies, and how this group of people were kind of pissed, and it's just so silly. And it was just really dumb, and just being young and insecure. But it means a lot to have a place where you belong. I yeah, think. yeah, and I think he realized that. I mean, for me, that was SNL. That scene was that scene is me, my first season with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, and. Fred Armisen and Rick Dratch and all these and Seth Meyers, all these people at that table getting drinks, and me just thinking, "Gosh, it'd be great to be a part of this company." And I, I just feel like I'll learn so much and become a better performer and writer if I just can hang with them and not get fired. I feel a little weird, and this is something that the audience wouldn't know, but I feel a little weird because your dad is right over there. Oh yeah, my dad's here. And you've actually you've talked about your dad a little bit on the show. Mm-hmm. I guess imagine he's not sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> what would you tell me about him? <laughs> oh, my dad's great. My dad's the reason I I like I, he liked all the good stuff when I was growing up. It was, you know, showing me Monty Python at a very young age. He showed me Clockwork Orange when I was way too young. <laughs> um, the Wild Bunch, you know, all these things. I got kind of this excitement at being exposed to these, you know, the good stuff, you know, uh, Spinal Tap we used to watch constantly and Saturday Night Live. And, you know, my parents were very young parents. And so they let us watch what they were watching. And then I, I told this story before, but he also helped me. We, we, you know, we watched the movie The Abyss and there was a scene where Ed Harris is having a problem in his marriage and... Uh, later in the movie, this door, this big metal door is about to close. And if it closes, he's going to drown inside the submarine. <laughs> and uh, he wedges his hand right as the door is closing and his wedding ring stops the door and then saves his life. And I remember my dad going, oh, get it. <laughs> <laughs> And at that age, again, I was like nine or eleven, yeah, ten or eleven, going, okay, that's lame. Okay, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> that's stupid. Well, Bill Hader, thanks so much. It's thanks, always man. It's always good to see you here. I'm so happy for the new show and all your success. Oh, thanks, buddy. It's good to see you, man. Bill Hader. Watch him on HBO's Barry, which I really love. It is hilarious and sad and weird, and its second season kicks off later this month. His other TV show, Documentary Now, is also amazing. It's in the middle of its third season. You can catch that on IFC. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. We want to take this opportunity to thank Shana Deloria, our production fellow for over a year. We got her a Tres Leches cake from Annie's Bakery on 6th Street, right next to MacArthur Park. It's their signature cake. Can't recommend it highly enough. Do be careful, though, because uh, if you put it on your car seat for too long, your car seat is not perfectly flat, so the juices will all leak down into the corner of the box and thence 
into the crevice in your passenger seat. So be careful with those tres leches cakes. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien, our new production fellow. Sitting outside the studio right now is Jordan Cowling. Thank you, Jordan. Our interstitial music is by DJW, the great Dan Wally. Thanks to him for sharing it with us. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries share it with us. Our thanks to them, of course. And before you go, we have been doing this for more than 15 years. In one form or another, there are literally hundreds of Bullseye interviews. I hope you will take a dip into our back catalog sometime. You can do it with your favorite podcast app. You can find all of our shows uh, on our website at MaximumFun.org or just by Googling. Just think of somebody who it seems like was probably on Bullseye sometime and just... Google their name and my name and see if it comes up. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at Bullseye, and on YouTube, where we put all our new interviews in easily shareable and viewable form, although usually without much of a video element. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.